do I, you know, do I actually buy a car and take the bus? And do I have daycare for my child or do I go to work? Because if I go to work, I can't have daycare. Some questions can be like, well, I only have this much money. Do I do anything fun with my family? No, because I just found out my child is sick and now I have to buy prescriptions, but I don't have insurance. <laughs> like those are the really small choices that Alice makes every day. Karen Perham-Lipman is now a deputy commissioner of Connecticut's Department of Consumer Protection with a steady job and stable income. But she wasn't always so lucky. For a while, she and her three boys were an Alice family. Alice stands for Asset Limited, Income Constrained, Employed. And it's the term used by the United Way Alice Project to describe the many households living above the federal poverty line, but below what it actually takes to afford even the basics like housing, food, transportation, or childcare. This group, which the United Way estimates at about 30% of U.S. households, is often overlooked when we think about financial need. And as a result, they're largely forgotten by assistance programs targeted exclusively to those in literal poverty. But these stories are everywhere. Alice is serving you food. Alice is cleaning your hotel room, bringing up your groceries, and driving your Uber. So let's find out a little bit more about her on this episode of Bending the Arc. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Bending the Arc from the University of Pennsylvania's School of Social Policy and Practice. I'm your host, Dan Traglia. Today, we're talking with our producer and podcast fellow, Emily Berkowitz, about the United Way's Alice Project, which created a new measure of income insufficiency and tells both the story of households who aren't making it and the massive personal and societal costs from these gaps between what it takes to live and how much families are actually making. Hey, Emily. Hey, Dan. So... As I mentioned in the last episode on the universal basic income, I've been working with the Alice Project as a research fellow for a couple years now. And as part of that, I've been involved in their research and their methodology and kind of putting out some of our recent reports. Right. So knowing that, it'd probably be weird if you were the one asking me questions. So let's switch our roles and uh, make this more of a conversation, less of an interview. I can't handle that pressure. That seems fair. So let's metaphorically switch chairs. We won't because I like having the controls. And what I'm going to do is defer to two experts as much as I can. So we, or really you, interviewed the project director, Dr. Stephanie Hoops, and Karen Parham-Lipman, who you heard from earlier uh, and is based out of Connecticut's Department of Consumer Protection. Let's have this conversation, but I'm going to bring in audio from those conversations. And I think I kind of want to start this by setting the scene through a clip from your conversation with Karen, describing her life and really kind of the chaos of her life uh, without having enough to to get by for herself and her kids. When we were in the situation of being Alice, there could be a day where things seemed okay. We've received a food donation. You know, I, I got a paycheck. Um, the car was running okay, and things were okay for a little bit. But then one one thing could happen which would essentially cause our situation to sort of spiral. And for us, a great example of that is what I call the like just worst, terrible, no good, bad day. <laughs> and that was a day in which we had a storm here in the Northeast in which power was lost for quite a few days. And on that day, I had actually put together 
a little bit of money to go to the grocery store and I'd fill our fridge and uh, all that food spoiled. We lost power. We had no electricity. At the same time, my well pump broke in the yard and we had no water. The consequences of this struggle are not trivial, and they have a broad range of physical and psychological consequences for these families. Now, most of the research focuses on people in poverty or de-poverty, and less the people like Karen who qualify as Alice, that gap between poverty and what it actually costs to live. As an illustrative example, let's look at childhood poverty, because those early years set the stage in so many ways for the rest of one's life. Now, we know from the research that these children are more likely to grow up in dangerous conditions, like living in a home without smoke detectors or even functional stairs and doors. They're also more likely to grow up in areas of concentrated poverty, which means that they're more likely to experience a lot of that violence we talked about in our second episode. Yeah, and all of these experiences are linked to consequences that continue to impact a person through adulthood, like in their educational outcomes or even brain development. There was a study done in 2009 from the National Center for Children in Poverty at Columbia University that found children who grow up poor are not only more likely to experience poverty as adults, but also that the likelihood of being poor in adulthood increases with the number of years spent living in poverty as a child. So in numbers, what that looks like is for adults who never experienced poverty in childhood, around 5% of them were poor at age 20 and 25. But for people that were poor from anywhere between one to seven years as a kid, that percent went up to 13. And then for children who spent eight to 14 years in poverty, 46% of them were poor at age 20 and 40% were poor at age 25. And those are pretty big differences. And I think you've looked into this a little more, Dan, but there's also some research on the societal costs of childhood poverty. Yeah, so there are a couple studies out here, and one of the most robust finds that the annual aggregate cost, the annual cost of childhood poverty is over a trillion dollars, right? 5.4% of the whole country's gross domestic product. Now, that includes kind of the full range of direct and indirect costs. So things like increased crime, healthcare, the cost of childhood homelessness and maltreatment, along with the economic productivity lost as a result of that poverty. So it's not much of a surprise then that these estimates show that for every dollar we spend on reducing childhood poverty, we as a country would save at least $7. And I'm really uh, glad we're bringing these issues up first because they're underlying the importance of this conversation about broadening our understanding of success and, and need in the American economy. The ALICE measure that we're talking about is an attempt to quantify real need through income insufficiency. Now, there's already an official federal figure to do this, the federal poverty measure, but it's received quite a lot of criticism over the years. Let's talk more about that. Sure. So let's start with kind of the origin of the federal poverty level, or the, the FPL as we might, we might call it um, in, our, in our jargon. Here's Dr. Stephanie Hoops, who I mentioned earlier, giving some background to its origin. 50 years ago, when Lyndon Johnson had his war on poverty, he needed a measure to see if they were making progress in the war on poverty. So um, it was at a really hectic time in, in the administration. So what's available? And somebody said food should be a 30-year budget. And here's the cost of living for a family of four. Multiply by that, that by three. And that became the federal poverty level. And a few years ago, I went back and, and, and tracked it from, you know, the very first one. And if you increase that by inflation, it's almost exactly what the federal poverty level is today. So you've probably never heard of a woman named Molly Roshansky. 
but she's the economist at the Social Security Administration who came up with the initial draft of the poverty threshold. And some small adjustments notwithstanding, it became official in 1969, and its methodology has been largely constant since. So here's how she did it. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, also known as the USDA, has four different market baskets, also called food plans, that provide different levels of food quantity and, very importantly, quality. And they're aptly named the thrifty, low-cost, moderate-cost, and liberal-cost plans, right, going from the cheapest to the most expensive. The thrifty plan is the baseline, the bare minimum for a nutritious diet with minimal cost. And Arshansky estimated that food was about a third of the cost of living, which at that time it about was. So she took that budget, that food budget, and she multiplied it by three. And that's our poverty measure. And you might have heard of the basket of goods that's used to guide poverty, and that's it. It's a thrifty food plan. And it's adjusted every year for inflation, and it varies by household size. So for a single adult right now, the federal poverty level is about $12,000. And for a family of four, it's about $25,100. And there are some serious and really well-documented flaws in the method. And we'll kind of go through them quickly here. So for one, food is no longer about a third of the household's expenditures. It's probably closer to 10 to 12 or 10 to 15%. Second, we're excluding kind of huge drivers in the cost of living, right? Housing and childcare, for example, are the two biggest expenses that most households face, right? Childcare, obviously, only if they have kids. And oftentimes that is the most expensive, but certainly if there are no kids, housing is almost always the most expensive line item in a household's budget. Uh, but they're nowhere to be seen here. And for the most part, there's no geographic adjustment, right? It's the contiguous 48 states and then separate poverty levels for Alaska and Hawaii. But we know that the cost of living varies from place to place, even within the contiguous U.S. and even within a state. In New York City, for example, the fair market rent of a two-bedroom apartment is about $1,500. And in Buffalo, New York, it's half of that. And in rural Iowa, it's maybe a third of that. So that $25,100 is going a lot farther in some places than it would in, in others. Right. And I think this also really speaks to problems of perception and need, in particular that there are high need areas where everyone is poor or living below some threshold of sufficiency. And then you have these rich areas where everyone is well off. We have all kinds of perception problems when we're talking about income and poverty and income insufficiency, right? And there are kind of two points here. One is that we have that we know who poor people are. We can tell them from a mile away. There are a whole bunch of philosophical, ethical problems with that. But even more so, it's just empirically wrong. And that goes to even the most extreme poverty. And I'll give an example here. I do a lot of work on counting unsheltered homeless populations. We have volunteers going out into streets and, and parks. Um, and I do this kind of mostly in New York. There are some places where they just say, oh, this person looks homeless. We're going to tally them as homeless. In New York, we make sure that they don't do that. They ask everyone they encounter what their housing situation is. Do they have a place to stay on that night? Because appearances really can be deceiving. Plenty of people that are homeless that don't look homeless. And plenty of people that you might guess are homeless if you looked at them, um, but they're, they're quite well off. We also have this geographic perception of need, that there are poor areas and middle-class areas and rich areas, and that they are kind of homogenous within. Let's hear Stephanie's story of the genesis of Alice so you get a better picture of what this looks like. So... We started in northern New Jersey, which is a really expensive area of the country, because there was this juxtaposition between a really low poverty rate 
and a lot of apparent need in the community. And looking into that further, we realized that the official federal poverty level uh, was set so low that it really didn't capture financial hardship in a community where the cost of living was very high. Um, and so then when we looked into what the actual cost of living was, it was at least double the federal poverty level. Wow. And as a result, uh, we found that instead of 4% of the population struggle struggling, it was about a quarter of the population. So a really different magnitude of the problem. I think one of the major problems in the discourse around poverty and financial need in this country is that we have this dividing line between haves and have-nots, and we ascribe to them deserving and undeserving. The haves deserved what they got, and the have-nots, well, they deserved what they got too. And there's a lot of nuance here and a lot of macroeconomic forces that we're not going to kind of get into the weeds on. But I think part of the solution to that symbolic violence, that kind of demonization and dehumanization that we spoke about in our second episode, is about understanding that nebulous middle ground. It's about how easily these kind of transitions happen between, between having and not having. Yeah, and I think that also really comes through in what Karen said about her situation, like how quickly these things happen. The catalyst for our circumstance of becoming Alice was a divorce. My boys and I were living in an untenable situation, and I made the choice to leave when my three boys were very, very young. My twins were infants, and my oldest was about four and a half, and we left and went through a divorce, and that situation put us um, on essentially uh, ultimately on social services and we became an Alice family struggling just to survive and and put you know for me to put food on the table and pay our pay our bills you know I'm, I'm highly educated mm-hmm. <laughs> and I you know come from a situation that from the outside looks like everything is fine you know I have a family I have a house I have a car I have all the things that you would perceive that that person is doing just fine. And um, and yet, despite my education or our background, we still found ourselves in that situation. So we have this big gap between poverty and what it takes to actually survive. And I know there have been efforts to address this issue. Probably the most prominent is the supplemental poverty measure, which was developed by the Census Bureau. Is that also falling short? So it's definitely an improvement on the official poverty measure but it's still falling short in a few ways. Let's start with what it does. First, it's looking at a different basket of goods. So instead of just looking at at food, we're also looking at things like food, clothing, shelter, and utilities, right? More of the things that a household needs to get by on a day-to-day basis. It also includes, and this is kind of on the other side, this is on the income side, it's including the benefits that families receive, like the earned income tax credit, that are unlikely to be reported through uh, the current population survey that serve as the basis for the official poverty measures. It's a step in the right direction, but it's, it's definitely not a panacea. And one surprising thing here is that the percent of people living below the supplemental poverty measure, the supplemental poverty rate, is not much higher than the official poverty rate. Right? It's 13.9% of people versus 12.3% of people. And there are certainly some subgroups and some states that are that have higher supplemental poverty rates than official poverty rates. Um, but in the aggregate, it really doesn't change the figures. But the ALICE measure does change these figures. Tell us a little bit more about the difference and how ALICE improves upon our current measures of poverty. 
Sure. We're looking at a broader range of items to be included in a household budget, right? A, a wider and what we think is kind of a more representative basket, and there's more geographical diversity. So we're getting data at the county level for all 50 states plus Washington, D.C. And it's measuring what the Alice Project argues is the bare minimum to live and work in the modern economy. So we're looking at housing, uh, child care, transportation, uh, health care, taxes, because Alice pays taxes, a phone, right? Particularly a smartphone, because you need a smartphone to get through, especially if you don't have kind of stable employment, or maybe you're driving for kind of Uber or Lyft or something like that. They rely on smartphones, right? And they are probably in this Alice bucket and some kind of miscellaneous fund because Alice still needs to buy shoes, clothes, thing, you know. Things like that. And these things make up what the Alice Project calls the household survival budget, what it takes to survive at the bare minimum. And it varies by household size and it varies by geography. So across New York State, the average household survival budget for a single adult is $23,000. And for a family of four, it's about $69,000. But that varies widely depending on where we're looking. So in Staten Island, New York, where, where I'm from, for example, we argue that it costs a family of four about $74,000 to get by. But in Lewis County, in upstate New York, it's only 62000 And those numbers compared to some of the other figures we are used to seeing might sound high at first blush, but it's important to consider what we're comparing them to. They're kind of an antiquated poverty number. The budget is also to some degree defined by the things that it doesn't include. There's no line item for savings or debt or emergencies. And so it's really hard to walk that tightrope and have nothing bad happen. And as we go through our lives, all of us have emergencies. So what kind of response have you been getting to the Alice measure? I think the response from the field has largely been confidence in those figures. If you listen to the Universal Basic Income episode that we put out a couple of weeks ago, you heard Hawaii Representative Chris Lee bring up the Alice measure. And I was going to kind of bait him into this because it's certainly relevant to the topic. And the gap between kind of official poverty measures and the Alice measure are more stark in Hawaii than they are just about anywhere else. But he brought it up on his own. He spoke to the disparity between official employment figures and those Alice figures. And we've been hearing that across the country. And to that question of, is this too high? Listen to what Stephanie had to say. When we you know, go out and talk in communities, I've never had anybody say that the numbers are too high. Mm-hmm. It's more, I can't feed my family on that. I Wait, can I, where can I find an apartment for that? Mm-hmm. So it's really the bare minimum. Um, and yet it, it does add up. Right, so we have this alternate measure of income insufficiency, and what is it telling us? So remember, remember what I said before, that about 13% of households in the U.S. fall under the official poverty line, about 14% fall under the supplemental poverty line, okay? Well, 43% of households in the U.S. fall below the Alice threshold. That's about 30 percentage points higher than we're seeing out of any of the two U.S. Census measures. Let's get a sense of the the scope here, right? just how many people, households we're talking about. So in 2016, the U.S. Census Bureau estimated that 16 million households were living in poverty. Okay, that's already a lot. That was 14% of all households at that point. The Alice measure adds another 35 million households facing severe financial hardship, right? That's tripling the number of people that we think aren't able to make it on a day-to-day basis, right? Just think about that for a second. And I'm a data guy, so I don't use my heart very often, but wow, 
And one of the most important takeaways from these data and the reports produced by the Alice Project is that the people struggling don't fit any stereotype along the lines of race, ethnicity, age, or gender. When we started this, we thought, you know, we're going to be able to find out what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And in digging through all the, the demographics, what we found is there is no one Alice family. Um, Alice is all race and ethnicities. Alice is all ages. Mm -hmm. Alice is all family types. So certainly single uh, people, but also couples, couples with kids, couples with kids uh, grown up living back with them. Mm -hmm. But also in our modern economy, uh, modern culture, we have all kinds of roommates and we have grandparents and we have aunts and cousins and all kinds of combinations of, of households. And we see those other kinds of households growing over time. So an important part of the Alice story. And that's not to say that we don't see patterns, but those patterns often dispel conventional wisdom or also illuminate major policy gaps. Let's use New Jersey as an example. So one of the myths about poverty and financial need is that it's concentrated among racial and ethnic minorities. But while white households in New Jersey have one of the lowest rates of living below the Alice thresholds at 32%, they actually make up the majority of the 1.2 million households living below that Alice threshold. And we can look at the financial need by age to see glaring policy gaps, particularly for those over the age of 65. While they have a low rate of literal poverty at 10%, an additional 36% fall into that Alice category where they aren't able to afford all of their basic necessities. So this tells us from a policy perspective that Social Security is in fact keeping seniors out of literal destitution, right? the worst financial need, and that's a good thing, but we still have a lot of people struggling into their older ages and retirement. So as we're reading stories about seniors returning to the workforce, this is one of the places that we need to look. So I want to go back to those household survival budgets for a second and think about how much does a family need to make to be able to afford all of their basic needs. So the federal poverty level says that for a single person working 40 hours every week consistently, no sick days, it's going to take $12 an hour to support a family of four. But in Staten Island, for example, it would take a wage of $36 an hour working 40 hours every week consistently to meet the Alice threshold, which is $74,000 annually based on those additional survival budget items. So is part of the problem then that wages aren't paying enough to get these families to some sense of financial security? There is certainly a lot of evidence to suggest that. So we can even start with kind of what we think of as long-term, stable, steady jobs. More and more research suggesting that workers can count on their steady jobs because of the volatility and unpredictability of both their income and expenses. One Harvard Business Review study found that the major source of income volatility was not due to job changes, but to changing income from the same job. Uh, right? That could be number of hours worked or tips received. Think of where low-income households are working. Perhaps they're working at a restaurant, and if there's not enough business, they are being sent home a few hours early. That's both less tips and less hourly wage than they would get if they worked the full day. We can get a pretty good sense of this through data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I have some of their data for the state of Connecticut right here. The household survival budget for a family of four is about $78,000 a year. Right? That's even more than what we were talking about in the Staten Island. And of the 20 most common jobs there, 13 of them, that's 65%, are paying less than $20 an hour. That's barely more than half of what they would need to make ends meet. And these people are making less than that. 
Alice is working as a cashier, as a retail salesperson, right? And these aren't kids, right? These are people that are supporting families or trying to support a family in their 20s, their 30s, their 40s, and their 50s because those are the only jobs available to them for one reason or another, but jobs that pay matter. Alice works in jobs that we need in our economy. So Alice is in a lot of um, service jobs where they um, care for our infrastructure, care for our workforce. Um, So things like uh, repairing roads and cars, but also um, teaching our children and providing health care for all of us. So these are people that are essential to, to our economy, to our society, and they live and work right in the middle of all this. So it's not, you know, a problem that's over there in the corner. It's a, it's a, a real issue with our entire fabric of our society. So this project paints a very different picture of financial need than I think we as a society are accustomed to. And that has huge implications for assistance programs of all types. Medicaid only goes up to 100% or 130% of the federal poverty level in expansion states. SNAP eligibility is up to 138% of federal poverty level in many places. But in Connecticut, for example, the Alice threshold is more than three times the federal poverty level. So the implication is there are a lot of people with need who aren't getting much help. That's absolutely right. And certainly when we're thinking about those assistance programs, there is some acknowledgement, oftentimes, not always, that the federal poverty level is just not enough. Right? Oftentimes we're looking at eligibility based on multiples of the FPL. But we need to be thinking about, about higher than that because, as you said, that Alice thresholds is three times higher than the federal poverty level, and that's not terribly rare. We need to think about who's eligible for services, but also where are we trying to help people get to, right? It can't just be a dollar more than the federal poverty level. You said federal poverty level. It's based on the writings of Elmer Fudd. It is a wabbit based <laughs> but that was great. No, that was good. Fine, let's try it again. Getting a household to a dollar or two more than the federal poverty level, or even a hundred dollars more than the federal poverty level, doesn't get them to where they need to go, right? It should be no surprise, based on our public policy, that a third of families that escape from poverty return to literal poverty within four years. We're not getting them to a place where they have any breathing room. Uh, One of the things that we look at in trying to understand the challenges is there is a lot of public assistance spent on people who are uh, in poverty or are Alice and wondering, is is that enough to fill in that gap between what Alice earns and and what you need to have a a stable uh, lifestyle? So we um, have an income assessment where we add up all the money that's spent on Alice and uh, put that on top of what all Alice households earn. And in every state where we've done that, there's still a gap between uh, what what income Alice families have and what's needed to get to that basic level of, of survival. But what we also see is it makes a huge difference for a lot of families that that public assistance without that would be an awful lot worse. So that's the conversation about targeted direct assistance. But those are largely band-aids. They're not addressing the underlying problems. Think back to those professions we were talking about a few minutes ago. In that list of the top 20 jobs in Connecticut, only two paid enough for a single earner to support a family of four. And fewer than half of them paid enough for even a household with two earners to afford all of their needs. 
We also see a lot of people saying, oh, you know, what's wrong with you? Why can't you, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps? Mm -hmm. And we really like to step back and say, you know, the data is just very factual. If, if the wages aren't paying enough to support this budget, it doesn't matter how hard you work, how good your work ethic is, it's a structural problem. So I think that brings us to the what do we do about it portion of the episode. I know I was particularly struck by something Stephanie said, that helping Alice households, right, targeting them specifically, doesn't just benefit them. It benefits the community as a whole. Uh, well, one of the things that we uh, have become more aware of is that, you know, while Alice has some very tough decisions to make for his or her family, that those uh, decisions have consequences not only for the family, but for the whole community. For example, if Alice uh, can't afford to live uh, in, in a decent house near where they work, sometimes they choose to live far away. Well, that puts a lot more traffic on the road that everyone then has to deal with. So that there are you know, ways that we're all connected that aren't always apparent. If you look at every part of that budget, when there's not enough money there, there's a spillover for our whole economy. It's in Alice's best interest to, to have better choices, but it's in the in whole community's uh, best interest. All right. With that in mind, what do Stephanie and the Alice team recommend that we do? It's tough, in part because the challenge is so broad and in part because we can't anticipate all of the challenges and needs over the next 10 or 15 years. But that's not to say that there aren't specific options available. We'll link to some of them in our show notes because we don't have time to go through them all here, but let's talk about a couple. So last week, we talked about the universal basic income, which is gaining momentum. We're also seeing more and more states and local governments institute minimum wage and living wage laws. One of the things we mentioned earlier was the extreme volatility in wages, even for those with steady jobs. So here in Philadelphia, Councilwoman Helen Jim is pushing for fair workweek legislation that would ensure advance notice of schedules, a pathway to access for more hours, compensation for last-minute schedule changes, and protection from retaliation for employees of chains with at least 250 employees in 20 locations. We also need to do more to address the widening skills gap, which is likely to grow as our economy becomes more heavily digitized, and facilitate savings and access to affordable credit. And Alice Household is already struggling, so they can't afford their car to break down or an unexpected medical bill. And they need some help in getting there without having to touch predatory lenders or hoping that their family and friends can help. Right? GoFundMe isn't a sustainable insurance policy or credit system. So we just talked about kind of the macro level, the policy level, but there are also things that we can do at an individual level. And certainly one of the things we've mentioned nearly every episode so far is empathy. Now, I hope we've done more than this over the course of the last 20, 25 minutes. But if we've done nothing else, I hope that we've given you, the listeners, kind of some appreciation for what these households that are struggling to make ends meet are going through and just how difficult it is for them to get back on their feet. And so empathy goes to kind of two levels here. First is not blaming people who are poor or struggling for their own circumstances. If nothing else, you're not being helpful. And second, we can operationalize that empathy in the form of real goodwill. Once again, here's Karen speaking about the impact of donors and helpers in her life. Let's help people feel like there's an, there's an opportunity for them. I mean, we are the most amazing country of amazing people. 
of incredible everyday heroes. And there's so much we can do to make a difference for each other. And um, I feel so honored and, and it's such a privilege to be in the situation we're in, to be able to share our story and to try to help someone else who might be right now hearing this interview and think, I'm in that situation, what do I do? And maybe they pick up the phone and, and they reach out to their local United Way 211 or their United Way or another agency like their social services office and get help and their situation changes. And Dan, how can listeners get involved? Abandon all hope, ye who enter our society. Been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> Doing that. Well, if grad school doesn't make you abandon all hope, I don't know what will. For one thing, you can find out more about the project by going to unitedwayalice.org. And to find a United Way to get involved in, go to the main United Way homepage, unitedway.org, and click on the Get Involved button. So that's how you can help on kind of a one-to-one level. You helping a single person or you helping kind of a single organization. But one thing that Karen emphasized to us is that you need to be civically involved in order to make a difference at a large scale. Identify the leaders in your community helping Alice households. These can be small food pantries or it can be an accountant offering their time pro bono to help Alice households file their taxes to make sure they get the earned income tax credit. They can be community-based organizations like the United Way or plenty of others that are doing good in their communities. And they can be politicians at the local, state, and national level. But the only way to help Alice households on that scale is to get involved. If you can, volunteer and find other ways to support politicians doing the right thing. And most important, at the most basic level, vote. Three states, Idaho, Nebraska, and Utah, just voted to expand Medicaid to more low-income families a couple of weeks ago. That doesn't happen if people stay home. Well, Dan, thanks a lot for walking us through that. But next time, I'm going to need my chair back. This hosting seat is a little too low for me. You know, if you're going to make a short joke, you can't be the same height. That's all for this episode of Bending the Arc. Find out more information about the Alice Project and ways you can get involved by visiting our website, www.sp2.upenn.edu slash Bending the Arc. You can now also find us on Twitter at PenBTAPod. Find back episodes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And send us an email with your thoughts on the episode or suggestions for future topics at bendingthearc at sp2.upenn.edu. This episode was produced by myself, Emily Berkowitz, Sarah Marcus, Alana Peck, and Blanca Castro. Thank you to Dr. Stephanie Hoops and Karen Param-Lipman for sharing your wisdom and experience. We'll be back with a new episode in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye for now.